Welcome to the Brady Haywood Podcast. This is Apollo 13, Part 5. All engines running, commit, liftoff. We have liftoff, 11.22 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. Pete Conrad reports that your program is in. Pitch and a roll program and this baby is really going. Pete Conrad reporting the roll and pitch program to put Apollo 12 on the proper course. Altitude at one half mile. Roll's complete. Roger, Pete. It's the launch of Apollo 12, five months prior to the Apollo 13 mission. In command is Jim Lovell's old classmate, Pete Conrad. Everything is going well until 78 seconds into the flight when the Saturn V rocket is hit by lightning. The astronauts suddenly lose the platform in 12's command module. The bottom has fallen out of every reading on every electrical system on board. It looks like they've lost control of their ship. Okay, we just lost the platform, gang. I don't know what happened here. We had everything in the world drop out. Roger. Jerry Griffin is at the flight director's console and Glenn Lunny's standing beside him. This is shocking news. It means they could have to abort the mission. They may have to fire the small rockets that'll pull the command module off the top of the rocket and blow the Saturn V over the Atlantic. And as Jerry Griffin thinks this over, Pete Conrad begins reading down the list of systems that are out. Fuel cell lights and AC bus light of fuel cell disconnect, AC bus overload one and two, main bus A and B out. Jerry Griffin thinks this can't be. Even in their simulations, they've never seen anything this bad. This six million pound fully fueled rocket may be out of control. This mission may be over before it starts. Pete Conrad, Dick Gordon and Alan Bean may not be going to the moon. But working at the ECOM console is John Aaron. Griffin calls out to him, how's it looking ECOM? And to Aaron, it looks like a mess. A console of blinking lights and ratty data. But then Aaron notices something funny. The amp readings on the ECOM console haven't dropped to zero, which they should have if the fuel cells were knocked out. If the system has crashed, why is it still drawing power? Why is there some power rather than no power? Then Aaron realizes he's seen this pattern before, and he quickly speaks to Jim Kelly in his back room. Kelly agrees with him. They've seen it before during a countdown simulation or sim. Now in this sim, a rocket had accidentally tripped a circuit breaker on its telemetry sensors, which resulted in crazy, ratty data. Aaron had rebooted the sensors and all had been well. Now he realizes he's looking at the same thing, but this time it's during a real launch. The rocket may be fine. It could just be its sensors that were knocked out by the lightning. So with the very real possibility of an abort, John Aaron has figured out what's wrong and how to fix it. And it's only taken him 51 seconds. He says, flight, ecom, try SCE to aux. But Jerry Griffin's never heard of this switch before and he says, say again, SCE to aux? And Aaron replies, aux. And then Griffin sort of mumbles to himself, SCE to aux. And then Aaron clarifies what he means by aux, and he says, auxiliary flight. Griffin then doesn't hesitate and passes Aaron's instruction to the Capcom. Apollo 12, Houston, try SCE to auxiliary, over. 
But then it's clear Pete Conrad isn't quite sure what this means either. NCE auxiliary. SCE, SCE to auxiliary. But while Pete Conrad doesn't know what this switch is, Alan Beans certainly does. It's in the bottom row of panel C in the command module. He flicks it, and good data suddenly pops up on Aaron's console. And Jim Kelly says, Okay, we got it back, Ecom. Looks good. Ecom reports the readings back. Mark, one Charlie. One Charlie. Flight director, Jerry Griffin taking a staging status now. Apollo 12 down range 17 miles, altitude 20 miles. But to get everything back up, they still need to reconnect their fuel cells. Apollo 12 Houston, try to reset your fuel cells now. Inboard engine out on schedule. Altitude 33 miles, downrange 45 miles. Got a good S2, gang. Roger, we copy, Pete. You're looking good. Good staging and good thrust on the second stage. Right now, there are problems here. I don't know what happened. Uh, I'm not sure we can get hit by lightning. Your thrust is looking good, Pete. Okay, I have a good GDC, and Al has got the fuel cells back on, and we'll be working on our AC buses. Right, Pete. Your uh, fuel cells look good down here. I think we need to do a little more all-weather testing. Amen. I've reset all the fuel cells, we have all the buses back on the line, and we'll just square up the platform when we get into orbit. Roger, Pete. That sounds good. Hey, that's one of the better sims, believe me. We've had a couple of cardiac arrests down here too, Pete. There wasn't any time for that up here. John Aaron had saved Apollo 12, and he'd been given the title of Steely-Eyed Missile Man because of it the highest informal praise you can get in NASA. And now Gene Kranz has put him in charge of saving Apollo 13. And the problem Aaron has to solve is this. Apollo 13 has a dead service module, a lunar module that's shut down but keeping the crew alive, and a command module that's shut down too. And on Friday morning, the crew will come hurtling towards the Earth at over 25,000 miles an hour, and they will re-enter. John Aaron has to figure out along with Arnie Eldritch and the Tiger team in room 210, how to power the command module up for two hours so it can re-enter safely. And this has never been done before. It usually takes a team of pad technicians a full day to power it up. And these pad technicians have plenty of mains power to play with. Aaron has to achieve the same thing in only 30 minutes, using only the very limited power in the command module's batteries with only Jack Swigert helping. If he fails, the crew die. Now he has two ways he can conserve power. The first is he can decide to not switch on certain systems. If he leaves these systems switched off, then they won't use up his amps. The second way he can conserve power is to leave each system switched off for as long as possible. In other words, by switching some systems on as late as possible, they'll be on for less time and use fewer amps. And it's Aaron's ability to work with people as much as his technical ability that's going to produce a solution. He knows the systems he wants to play with, but he needs buy-in from the Tiger Team controllers. And his style of dealing with them is to downplay what he knows. He pretends he doesn't really know the systems like they do. So in room 210, Aaron begins. He says, fellas, I know I'm not supposed to know about all your systems, so bear with me and correct me when I make a mistake. But I think I have some ideas about how we can get this ship online when the time comes. 
Now, the way I see it, we're going to have about two hours of battery time to go from a cold stop to full power up. And then the guidance and navigation officer interrupts him. John, you can't do it in that time. And Aaron says, well, now, that's what I thought, Bill. But I think if we're willing to make a few shortcuts, we just might be able to pull it off. And the guidance officer says, sure, you can pull it off. But can you pull it off safely? And Aaron says, I think just maybe we can. I've got a few ideas here, just rough stuff, nothing set in stone. But maybe if we all took a look at them, we could all flesh them out a little bit. And then Aaron pulls out a chart of paper that's covered with crayon markings. And there are pages and pages of this stuff. And there's nothing rough about it at all. This is everything Aaron put together with his electrical systems expert, Jim Kelly. The same Jim Kelly who'd help him save Apollo 12. And Aaron's plan is brutal about how much power they have and what they can do with it. For the controllers, this is confronting stuff. So he passes the papers out and he watches them. And he knows the pressure they're under is immense. These procedures usually take months to put together, but they have only 62 hours until splashdown. But in order to make splashdown actually happen, they really need to have these power-up procedures together in 48 hours. This is so they have time to test them and get them up to the ship. And Aaron is also working through the order the switches are going to be turned on in. So not only does he want to delay turning on systems for as long as possible to save power, he's also constrained by the practicalities of turning them on. As an example, before he can turn on the ship's guidance system, he first needs to turn on the heaters that warm it up. And keeping an eye on all this is Arnie Aldrich's job. He's one of the Space Center's leading command module engineers. So while Aaron will work out how much juice each system will use, it falls to Aldrich to work out the sequence of flicking switches that will actually bring each system online without going over budget on Aaron's power calculation. And over the days that follow, a routine begins to form. Aaron and Aldrich send their plans to the controllers, say the INCO or the ECOM. These controllers usually go a bit nuts when they see what Aaron plans. They say it's a terrible sequence that'll damage or destroy their subsystem. And then the argy-bargy continues until finally they concede that maybe Aaron's and Aldrich's plan is sound and just might work. And once each controller has given their okay on a particular piece of the plan, it goes to Gene Kranz for approval. Then once he signs off on it, it goes by courier to the crew training building where Ken Mattingly is waiting. He hasn't got the measles. He's spending his time locked up on the command module simulator, going through Aaron and Aldrich's checklist to make sure it works. He's also checking that it's clear and makes sense. Sometimes it works and this good news is radioed back to room 210. And sometimes it doesn't, and it goes back for review. And this goes on for hour after hour after hour. Now, most of the Tiger team do not sleep for 48 hours, and it's now Wednesday night. They've worked solidly on the problem, and it finally looks like they have a power-up procedure that works. But there's one more big discussion to be had before it can be finalised. And Aaron knows that when he starts this discussion, all hell will break loose. They can power up the command module, but they can only power it up if they don't turn on the telemetry. If they do, it'll push them over budget and power, and they won't be able to complete the power-up. But powering up without telemetry data is something that terrifies NASA. They usually like to bring online system after system while carefully monitoring the telemetry data all the time. 
By watching the data, they can tell that each system is working properly before they bring the next one on. As far as controllers are concerned, this is the only way to operate. So Aaron takes to the floor to break the news to the controllers. He says, Gentlemen, Arnie and Jean and I have been crunching the numbers every way we can. While the checklist looks pretty good to us, there's one small glitch. It looks like we're going to have to perform the power-up blind. Someone asks, and that means? And Aaron replies, no telemetry. And all hell does break loose. Someone says, John, this is just asking for trouble. And Aaron replies, doing it any other way is just asking for more. And someone says, but no one's ever tried this kind of thing before. No one's even thought of trying it. And Aaron says, it wouldn't be the first thing about this flight that's been irregular. And someone says, this isn't just irregular, John. This is downright dangerous. Suppose something starts to overheat or blow. We won't know until it's too late. And to this, Aaron simply says, and suppose we use up all our juice monitoring the systems and don't have enough left to bring them online. Then where are we? And the arguments go on and then Aaron appears to compromise. He says, wait a minute. How about we try this? How about we set aside a few amps so that when we get all powered up, we switch the telemetry on for just a few minutes and take a good scan. I admit it's not as good as monitoring everything as we go along, but at least we'll have a chance to spot problems and catch them before they do any damage. How would that be? And they argue a little more, but eventually they have agreement and it's all written down by Aldrich. And over the days, Aldrich will not part with this checklist and any changes to it will be marked up by him and no one else. This is the very survival of the crew. It runs to 39 pages and has over 400 separate tasks to be completed. Switches to be flicked, breakers to be changed. And Gene Kranz is proud of this team, but it's time for them to get some rest. They're going to need it. Tomorrow they're going to have to communicate the entire procedure verbally up to Swaggart, and he's going to have to write it all down. All 400 steps. Kranz looks at his people and says, I want everyone in this room to finish what they're doing and go home. But nobody seems to hear him and he says louder, I want everyone in this room to finish what they're doing and go home. And they still don't respond. Hey, he shouts, the Tiger team is shut down for the night. I expect every one of you to knock off for six hours and I don't want to see you back here till morning. Up in Apollo 13, it's been a day of preparation for re-entry. Fred Hayes and Jim Lovell have been moving items from the LEM Aquarius over to Odyssey, the command module. Now the reason they're transferring stuff from one craft to the other is that the command module's computer will fly the ship during re-entry. But the computer expects the command module to be heavier than it currently is. They never landed on the moon and collected moon rocks, so they're too light. So to fix the weight issue, Lovell and Hayes are transferring a precise list of items to the command module. And Houston has also requested they transfer power from the LEMS batteries over to the command module batteries. And this is to top up the power in the batteries, which they'd used when powering down the command module on Monday night. And Lovell doesn't like this idea. Why screw around with the power in the LEM? What happens if this transfer of power causes problems in the LEM? Then he also starts to worry about the procedure they're planning on using for this transfer. It hasn't been tested. 
but the Capcom Joe Carowin assures him it's fine. And then he adds they have no choice. The command module battery is 20 amp hours short. If they want to get home, they need to charge it. It's that simple. And on top of this worry, Jim Lovell has plenty more. Swaggard had checked supplies in the command module and found most of their food was frozen. And Hayes is still sick, but he's already made it clear to Lovell that he doesn't want to talk about it, so Lovell hasn't pried further. And then Mission Control had come online and told them that their trajectory was shallowing. Shallowing again, even after Lovell had done their last course correction. Now they'll probably need to do another course correction, but the main engine on the limb is out because of the burst helium disc, which means the correction will have to be done using the limb's small thrusters. But this will really use up their available fuel. And then there's the dampness. There's water everywhere in the spacecraft. Beads of water are all over the walls, the windows and the instrument panels, just sitting there in zero gravity all from the astronauts respiring. And Lovell knows that if there's plenty of water on the front of the instrument panels, then there's plenty of water behind the instrument panels as well. And while the connections behind these panels are meant to be waterproof, they're only really meant to cope with normal humidity in the cabin, not running water. And when this command module is powered up and it gets warm, running water is exactly what they'll have. Running water in electrical systems, not a good combination. And it's when Lovell and Hayes are transferring the items between the LEM and the command module that Fred Hayes notices an envelope taped to the top of his personal preference kit, his PPK. Now these kits are for storing any personal items that the astronauts want to bring on the mission. He opens the envelope and inside is a note and a picture of Mary, his wife. There's also pictures of his kids. He opens the note and begins to read. Dear Fred, by the time you read this, you will already have landed on the moon and hopefully be on your way back to Earth. This is to let you know how much we love you, how proud we are of you, and how very much we miss you. Hurry home. Love, Mary. Lovell notices Hayes reading and asks, From Mary? And Hayes says, Hmm, she must have slipped it to whoever was stowing the PPKs last week. Lovell says, nice. He'd found the same thing from Marilyn in his PPK earlier, too. And it's at this point that Jim Lovell realises he is well and truly sick of this mission. He's bitterly disappointed he didn't get to walk on the moon, and now he just wants to go home. But to get home, they need the checklist to power back up the command module. Without it, nothing's going to happen. It's now Thursday evening, and re-entries in the morning. Lovell wants the checklist to make sure the crew and himself are happy with it. So he's done waiting. He's asked for it repeatedly over the past day and all he's got were vague answers and even jokes. Lovell hadn't been impressed. So he says to Hayes, Frito, what do you say we pack this stuff up, call the ground and see how they're coming with that damned re-entry checklist? So they both swim up the tunnel and into the command module. When they arrive, Lovell says to Swaggart, Hey Jack, you ready to go to work here? And Swaggart says, do I look busy? And Lovell says, then let's get these guys on the horn and get these procedures up here. I'm through waiting. Lovell gets on the comm to Vance Brand and says, Just one more reminder that I'm waiting for the power-up procedures you're working on. 
so I can run through them with the crew and make sure we've got our signals straight. And Bran says, Jim, we really are going to get it up to you. And Lovell says, okay. That's all he says, just okay. And Bran says, we just about have them to hand. And again, Lovell simply says, okay. And then Bran seems to feel compelled to say something. So he says, we should have them within the hour. And Lovell replies, I'll be standing by. Now, Bran probably has no clue when the procedures are going to be ready. But it turns out he's right. Because just then, John Aaron, Arnie Eldridge and Jean Krantz walk in through the back doors of Mission Control. All three of them look like men on a mission. Aaron is in the middle and Krantz and Eldridge are on either side. And he's carrying a bunch of papers pressed against his chest. The three men walk straight to the Capcom's console. Aaron hands Brand a copy of the procedures. Then he hands another copy to Krantz. Then he turns around and hands a copy to Aldrich. He keeps the last copy for himself. Brand gets on the comm. Houston Aquarius? Lovell answers, go Houston. And Brand says, okay, we are ready to read you up the first checklist installment. And Lovell says, all right, Vance, I'm going to get Jack on the line, so stand by. Up in Apollo 13, Swaggart puts on his headset and Lovell hands him the flight plans and a pen. You're on, Jack. Down in Mission Control, a crowd has started to form around the Capcom's console. Jerry Griffin and Glenn Lunny, the gold and black team flight directors, have arrived. Sly Liebergott walks over, the ECOM who'd been on duty in the crisis. Over the loop, they hear Jack Swaggart say, OK, Vance, I'm ready to copy. But Bran then says, OK, Jack, but we have to ask you to wait one minute again. We want to get a copy of the checklist into the hands of the flight directors and ECOMs, and it'll take a second or two. And when Jack replies, there's an edge to his voice. Roger, Houston. Aaron uses the Capcom's telephone to order more copies. And they wait. And two minutes go by, and Jack Swaggart waits up in 13. Gene Kranz gestures to Brand to keep talking. So Brand makes small talk. Say, Jack, how are you doing on command module water? You guys have any of that bagged water left? And Swaggart replies, negative. I went up and tried to repressure the potable tank, but nothing came out. And this conversation goes on and spins out. And Bran tries to come up with something else to talk about. And then the back doors of mission control burst open. But it's not someone with more copies of the checklist. It's flight controllers from the Tiger team. They want to be in the room when their work is read up to the crew. So Brand now says over the comm, Jack, we're probably going to have to hold on for about five minutes more. We have some more people coming on to listen to this. It took a lot of people to devise this procedure, and a few of them have been testing it out. So we'd like to have them all on hand while we give you the rest. And to this news, Swaggart says absolutely nothing. Nothing. Brand just gets static. And for Brand, this is excruciating. He has a tired and very frustrated crew, and he knows why they are, but he can't do a thing about it. But someone else can. Deke Slayton breaks protocol and comes on the comm. Deke is the chief astronaut, and it had been him who'd offered Jim Lovell his job years before. To Deke, the astronaut's welfare always comes first. So Bran knows that when Deke speaks to them, it'll calm them. Deke says, How's the temperature up there, Jack? You guys chopping wood to keep warm? And when Swaggart replies, he is much more upbeat. Deke, it's now about, I think, 50 in the lem and less in the command module. And Deke says, a nice fall day, huh? 
And Swigert replies, absolutely. And just so you know, the command module has been stowed per your earlier checklist, with the exception of the Hasselblads, which we'll use to photograph the service module when we let it go. And Deke replies, Roger, got that, Jack? And Swigert says, the lamb is pretty well stowed too, with the exception of a few things we have yet to bring over. And Deke says, Roger, got that too. But while Swigert is happier, the exchange has done nothing for Jim Lovell's mood. He comes on the comm and he doesn't address Deke. He speaks directly to Brand. He says, Look Vance, you've got to realise that we've got to establish a work rest cycle up here. We can't wait around for you to read up procedures all the time. We've got to get them up here, look at them, and we've got to get our people to sleep. So take that into consideration and get ready to send up that checklist. And then there is your silence on the line following this chat. No talk for a whole four and a half minutes. Then, finally, an engineer arrives with all the copies of the checklist and Vance begins the read-up. He reads up the 39-page long procedure. Jack Swigert writes it all down, writes down the checklist he'll need to execute perfectly to bring the command module back to life. Get one step wrong or forget a step or get them out of order and it could wreck the whole thing. And it takes them from 7.30pm to 9.15pm to get it all read up and checked. And then Brand says, OK, Jack, amazingly enough, it looks like we've closed up the loose ends here. And Swigert says, all right, if we have any questions, we'll be coming back at you. And Vance says, OK, we did run simulations and all this, so we think we've got all the little surprises ironed out. And all Swigert says is, I hope so, because tomorrow is examination time. That night in Apollo 13, no one gets much sleep. They're all cold, but part of the reason Jack Swigert can't sleep is because a horrible scenario is playing over and over again in his head. He sees himself in the command module, Lovell and Hayes are in the LEM, and it's time to jettison the dead service module. He sees himself reaching out for the switches that will complete the jettison, the SM jet switch. But at the last minute, because he's so tired, he sees his finger drift to the side, and instead of flicking the SM jet switch, he flicks the LEM jet switch by mistake. Then the horror begins. The latches holding the command and lunar module together are suddenly released and the two ships separate, with him in one and Lovell and Hayes in the other. Both ships suddenly depressurize, and that's it. All killed by Jack Swaggart, and all because he couldn't press the right switch. And this just keeps playing over and over in his head until he can't take it anymore. So in the small hours of Friday morning he gets up, he floats from the lem into the command module. He finds a piece of paper and some duct tape. Then he leans against the bulkhead and writes in large block letters the word NO on the paper. Then he tapes it over the LEM jet switch. Then he checks he's put it on the right switch, but even this is not enough for him. He gets Fred Hayes up into the command module and asks him to confirm which switch he's taped over. And a poor, confused Hayes confirms, yes, the right switch is taped over. Only then does Jack Swaggart begin to relax and begin to believe he just mightn't kill someone. And during the night, Deke Slayton comes back on the line and says that given that they're not sleeping, why not take some Dexedrine tablets? They might help. Deke also adds, Wish we could figure a way to get a hot cup of coffee up to you. 
it'd probably taste pretty good about now, wouldn't it? And Lovell says, yes, it sure would. You don't know how cold this thing becomes, especially when it's in a thermal roll that's slowing down. Right now the sun's on the engine bell of the service module and not getting down to the limb at all. And Slayton replies, hang in there, it won't be long now. But Slayton's worried. In three hours they'll do their final mid-course correction, which they'll power up the limb for, which will warm things up. But three hours seems too long a wait, so he calls the flight director's console to see if they can bring the limb on early. The flight director speaks to the Telmu who monitors the limb, and the news is good. They have used less power than expected, and they feel they have enough left to power up the limb right now. And the Capcom Jack Lausma says to Lovell, Okay, Skipper, we figured out a way for you to keep warm. We decided to start powering up the limb now. Just the limb, though, not the command module. So open your limb prep checklist and turn to the 30-minute activation. You copy? But Lovell wants to be sure they can afford to do this. He says, Hmm, copy. And you're sure we have plenty of electrical power to do this? And before Lausma can reply, Deke cuts in on the line and says, Jim, you've got 100% margins on everything from here on in. And Lovell and Hayes need no more encouragement. They complete the 30-minute power-up in only 21 minutes. And very quickly, they begin to warm up. Then Lovell grabs the attitude controller and spins the ship around so that the sun falls over the limb. Sunlight streams in the windows. Lovell just floats and feels the warmth on his face. Then he says over the calm, Houston, the sun feels wonderful. It's shining straight in the windows and it's getting a lot warmer in here already. Thank you very much. And as they get warmer, Lovell feels that everything just seems a little more possible now. Right now he feels they can tackle just about anything. And he knows they need to be. Because very soon they'll be tackling one of the most improvised and risky approaches and re-entries ever performed by NASA. At 4am on Friday the 17th of April 1970, the doors open and Gene Kranz leads his Tiger team into mission control. He takes his position at the flight director's console and watches his team fan out across the room. Kranz has believed throughout this entire mission that he'd get Apollo 13 home, and now they're going to make it a reality. To him, there are a range of manoeuvres that need to take place, most of them very unorthodox and many of them only put together in the past few days. The first thing to do is separate the dead service module from the command module. Once they've separated from the service module, the crew are going to take pictures of it, and these will be critical in trying to work out what happened to it. Then the crew will power up the command module, close the hatch, and cut loose the limb. Then they'll prepare for re-entry in the command module, Odyssey. Kranz watches the maroon team controllers stand up and step back from their consoles. The tiger team take their seats. This is the first time they've been on console since they manned the PC Plus 2 burn on Tuesday evening. But the Maroon team don't walk away from their consoles. They're staying to watch. Then members of the Gold and Black team start to filter into the room too. And with that, the White team clip on their headsets and Kranz prepares himself. It's Apollo Control Houston, 137 hours, uh, 20 minutes into the flight. 
A goodly uh, gathering of the astronaut corps in the Mission Control Center now. Donald K. Slayton is here, as is Tom Stafford, uh, chief of the astronaut office. Uh, Charlie Duke is here, Ken Mattingly, Gene Cernan. The crowd is, is beginning to increase. Uh, already here, uh, Dr. Thomas Payne, uh, NASA administrator. Mr. George Lowe, uh, NASA deputy administrator. Dave Scott, uh, Rusty Schweikert are among the astronauts in the viewing room at the present time, along with uh, Buzz Aldrin. Up in Apollo 13, the crew are preparing themselves as well. They're feeling good. They're alert and awake since they've got warmed up. Lovell has decided against the dexedrine tablets. He knows they'd give the team a lift, but he's afraid it'd be short-lived, and the crash would have left them worse off. Hayes still looks really ill, but they all hope adrenaline will get them through. They've just executed their final course correction, and when they look out of the ship, they see the earth is starting to fill their windows. They are so close to home. Joe Kerwin, the Capcom for the remainder of the mission, says, Aquarius Houston. And Fred Hayes says, Go, Joe. And Kerwin says, I have attitudes and angles for service module separation if you want a copy. You don't need a pad for this, just any blank sheet of paper will do. Hayes takes some paper from the flight plan and says, Go ahead, Houston. Okay, the procedures read as follows. First, maneuver the limb to the following attitude. Roll 000 degrees, pitch 91.3 degrees, yaw 000 degrees, and Hayes writes it all down. And Kerwin goes on. The next stage is for you or Jim to execute a push of 0.5 feet per second with the four jets from the LEM. Have Jack perform the separation, then execute a pull at the same 0.5 feet per second in the opposite direction. Got it? So the limb is going to push in the direction of the service module to give it some momentum. Then they'll release the service module, which will keep going in that direction. And then they'll fire the jets on the limb, which will push it in the opposite direction. That way they'll put some distance between the two modules and avoid a collision. Hayes says, got that. When do you want us to do this? And Kerwin says, about 13 minutes from now, but it's not time critical. And Lovell cuts over the calm. Can we do it anytime? And Kerwin says, that's affirmative. You can jettison whenever you're ready. So Swigert springs up into the tunnel and takes his position in the command module. He's floating in front of the instrument panel, staring at the jettison switches, and he sees his taped warning covering the LEM jet switch. Lovell and Hayes take their positions in the LEM. All three of the crew have cameras floating beside them. Lovell says over the comm, Houston Aquarius, Jack's in the command module now. And Kerwin says, real fine, real fine. Proceed anytime. Lovell shouts up the tunnel to Swaggart. Jack, you ready? And Swaggart's voice echoes back down. All set when you guys are. And Lovell shouts, all right, I'll give you a five count. And on zero, I'll hit the trusters. When you feel the motion, let her go. Roger shouts Swaggart. He picks up the camera with his left hand and hovers his finger over the SM jet switch. In the limb, both Lovell and Hayes have picked up their cameras as well. And Lovell begins. Five, four, three, two, one, zero. Lovell pushes the controller and the jets activate on the limb. In the command module, Swaggart flicks the switch and shouts, Jettison. The crew feel a pop and a jolt. 
Lovell pulls down on the controller, which pushes them away from the service module. Lovell calls out, maneuver complete. Now all three men are glued to the windows, trying to see the service module. But they can't see anything. It's not drifting into view. Swagger darts along the windows in the command module, but he can see nothing. He yells down the tunnel, nothing, damn it, nothing. And Lovell and Hayes can see nothing either. And then Lovell finally sees it. It's beginning to drift by them, moving slowly. And it appears to be totally okay, no obvious damage at all. But it's also rolling on its own axis. And as it rotates, Lovell is suddenly shocked by what he sees. One of the panels on the side of it, panel four, is completely gone. And what's left is a gash running from one end of the module to the other. One sixth of the outer skin is gone. And hanging out of this wound is insulation and a tangle of wiring and rubber lining. And where oxygen tank two should be is nothing. All that's left is a charred space. Lovell grabs Hayes' arm and points. Hayes is shocked too. At this point, Swaggart floats down through the tunnel with his camera. Lovell gets on the radio to Houston. There's one whole side of the spacecraft missing. And Kerwin says, is that right? And Lovell continues, right by the... And then he gets distracted and says, look out there, would you? Right by the high-gain antenna, the whole panel is blown out, almost from the base to the engine. And Hayes adds, it looks like it got the engine bell too. And Kerwin says, think it zinged the bell too, huh? That's the way it looks. It's really a mess. And Kerwin says, OK, Jim, we'd like you to get some pictures, but we want you to conserve fuel, so don't make any unnecessary manoeuvres. Swigert starts taking picture after picture out the window. Lovell does the same. And as the service module begins to drift out of view, Hayes says, Man, that's unbelievable. We show Apollo 13 presently uh, 33,369 nautical miles away. Velocity now reading 10,757 feet per second. Needless to say, all of the distinguished visitors uh, in the control center were most interested in the report uh, from Apollo 13 of the service module condition as um, the 13 crew moved away following the jettison. Well, I can't say that this week hasn't been filled with excitement. Well, uh, James, if uh, you can't take any better care of a spacecraft than that, we might not give you another one. But at the flight director's console, this description of the service module damage is very worrying for Gene Kranz. Given that the damage is so bad, the command module could be damaged as well. Specifically, he's worried about the heat shield that covers the base of the conical-shaped craft. This heat shield is critical to protect the craft as it goes through the Earth's atmosphere. When the air friction which slows the craft down also heats up the base of the craft to 2,700 plus degrees Celsius. If the heat shield's been damaged, the craft will burn up and kill the crew. But Kranz pushes these thoughts from his mind. If there is damage to the heat shield, then there's nothing he can do about it. As far as he's concerned, you do all you can, the rest you put in the hands of a higher power. And by now, all everyone is thinking about is the power-up of the command module. John Aaron has been sitting in the e-com seat since 4am and he's ready. And the crowd around him is growing. Cy Liebergut is there and the remaining e-coms for the mission turn up too. 
The screen in front of them has shown nothing useful for days, bar the quick temperature check on Wednesday night. Now, if John Aaron and Arnie Aldrich have got it right, and nothing actually shorts out because of all the water in the command module, they hope to bring this ship back to life. Aaron glances at the flight controllers around him, then goes on the loop. Flight, Ecom. And Gene Kranz says, Go, Ecom. And Aaron says, Ready for power up anytime the crew is. And Kranz says, Roger, Ecom. Capcom flight. And Kerwin says, Go, flight. And Kranz says, Ecom says the command module can come online anytime. Kerwin says, Roger, flight. Aquarius, Houston. Lovell says, Go, Houston. And Kerwin passes up, Your go to start powering up Odyssey. Lovell turns to Swaggart and motions him towards the tunnel. Swaggart has half an hour of work ahead of him. Swaggart begins and throws the first switch. Lovell braces himself for a sickening pop and sizzle because of the water. But there's no pop or sizzle. Swaggart keeps throwing more and more switches and slowly they hear the noises of the command module coming back to life again. Down in mission control, all the ECOMs are waiting. By Aaron's calculation, when Swaggart is just finishing the procedure and when he turns on the telemetry, they should not be drawing more than 43 amps. Even a little bit more than that and they'll run out of juice before the men get home. So they wait. And then the last few switches are flicked. The telemetry data starts to flow on Aaron's console and all the controllers lean in to look at the amp readout. And when Aaron sees it, he swears. It's not 43 amps, it's 45 amps. He says... What the hell are those two amps doing there? Cy Liebergut says, I have no idea. And Burton says, I'll be damned if I know. And Aaron says, well, they sure as hell don't belong there. We're blowing half our margin. He gets onto his back room. Electronics Ecom. And they say, go Ecom. Aaron says, run through the checklist and see what we left on. Roger. Then Aaron turns to the guidance and navigation console, the GNC. He says, you got anything on over there that shouldn't be on? Not that I can see, John. And Aaron says, well, scan. We've got two rogue amps. Then the backup room comes on. Got it. It's the BMAGs, the backup gyros. Tell the GNC to have the crew shut them off. Aaron turns to the GNC. Check your BMAGs. Are they on? The GNC looks at his console and says, oh, hell. Aaron gets on the comm. Flight Ecom, tell Capcom to tell the crew to shut off the backup gyros. The message gets relayed to Swaggart. Aaron and the other ECAMs watch the console. With relief, they see the amp readout drop to 43 amps. They've done it. The checklist put together by Aaron and Aldrich has worked. Now they have a functioning spacecraft again. Apollo 13 is now 16,000 miles from home and travelling at more than 10,000 miles an hour. In two hours, if everything goes well, they'll be home. Just to inform you, we've got data from the uh, from Odyssey and it looks good. Hey, great. Apollo Control Houston, now at 140 hours, 21 minutes now into the flight. Uh, we're receiving the command module tracking data now, and uh, the data is looking good. However, and looking over some of the command module displays, it appears... Corey, I thought as he was trying to call, can you read him? Uh, negative, don't read out of C yet. Has he got his uh, uh, intercom panel uh, configured? I'll double check. Uh, they're hearing you. Okay, good deal. I don't hear him yet. It appears to be a little chilly uh, inside the command module cabin at the present time. Uh, we have a reading of 38 degrees. In the LEM, Lovell is staring out the window at the earth when he says to his, Fredo, it's about time we bailed out of this ship. 
Hayes says nothing in response and Lovell turns around to see what's wrong. Hayes' eyes are closed and he's bracing himself against the bulkhead. He's deadly pale. His arms are wrapped around him and he's shaking violently. Lovell tries to hide his shock to keep his voice neutral, but he doesn't succeed. Fred, you look awful. Hayes tries to dismiss him and says, forget it, forget it, I'm fine. Lovell floats over to him and says, yeah, you look terrific. Can you hold out for a few more hours? Hayes replies, as long as I have to. Lovell says, two hours, that's all you have to hang on for. After that, we're floating in the South Pacific. We open the hatch and it's 80 degrees outside. Hayes shivers and mumbles, 80 degrees. Lovell says, man, are you a mess. So Lovell wraps his arms around him. And as the warmth starts to travel between them, Hayes' shivering begins to subside. Then Lovell tells him to float up the tunnel to Swaggart. He does, and Lovell finds himself alone in the limb. Before he can leave, he needs to change the trajectory of the craft for mission control. This is so the limb will re-enter and drop into a trench off the coast of New Zealand. Lovell adjusts the craft and calls the ground. Okay, Houston Aquarius, I'm at the LEM separation attitude and I'm planning on bailing out. Kerwin says, I can't think of a better idea, Jim. Before he leaves, Lovell grabs some souvenirs and he grabs the plaque that was meant to have been attached to the lunar module when it was on the moon. He's going to bring that home. He springs up the tunnel and stows the souvenirs. He is already buckled into his right-hand seat and swaggers in the left-hand seat. Now, this is normally where Lovell sits, but during re-entry, it's the command module pilot's seat. It will be Swaggart's job to be the pilot to bring them home. Lovell says to Swaggart, reporting aboard, Skipper. Swaggart looks really self-conscious and says, aye, aye. Then he signs on with his headset and says, OK, Houston, we're ready to proceed with hatch close-up. And Kerwin says, OK, Jack, did Jim get all the film out of Aquarius? Swaggart tells Houston affirmative, then adds, and we remembered to get Jim out too. And Kerwin replies, good deal, Jack. Then what we want you to do is seal the hatch and vent the tunnel until you get down to about three pounds per square inch. If the hatch holds pressure for a minute or so, you're okay and you can feel free to release Aquarius. Swaggart says, okay, copy that. Lovell signals to Swaggart that he'll close the hatch. He pushes out of his couch, retrieves the hatch, and fits it into place over the tunnel. Although they had a lot of trouble with the hatch on Monday night, it seems to fit well now. Lovell floats back up to his seat, and Swaggart asks him if it's sealed. Lovell replies, I hope so. Swaggart flicks some switches, and fresh oxygen starts flowing into the command module from its own tank. If all goes well, it should stabilise, and that way they know they don't have a hatch leak. But then, Swaggart says, oh no. Lovell and Hayes ask what's wrong. Swaggart says the flow is too high. It looks like we've got a leak. In mission control, John Aaron is looking at the same thing on his console, and he says, oh no, as well. The flight controllers around him ask what's wrong. But then Aaron reckons he knows what's going on. The LEM operates at a slightly lower pressure than the command module. And since the LEM has been regulating the pressure in both craft, the air pressure in the command module is lower than usual. So the command module is pumping air in faster than expected. But this is to bring the command module up to the correct operating pressure. Aaron reckons air isn't escaping through a leak in the hatch, there just isn't enough air pressure in the command module to begin with. 
Aaron says to those around him, sit tight for a moment, I think we'll be all right. And about 40 seconds later, he's right. The flow rates in the command module, as well as those on Aaron's console, have dropped to the right level. And over the comm, they can hear the relief in Swaggart's voice when he says to the Capcom, Okay, it's dropping now, Joe. And Kerwin says, Roger, in that case, when you are comfortably ready to release the LEM, you can go ahead and do so. On the mission clock in front of him, it reads 141 hours and 26 minutes. So Swaggart says, do it in four minutes. And Lovell replies, seems like a nice round number. So Swaggart says over the comm, okay Houston, we'll punch off at 141 plus 30. And the way that Mission Control has devised to safely release the LEM and put some distance between it and the command module is ingenious. They purposely left a residual pressure of three pounds per square inch in the tunnel between the two ships, when usually they reduce it to an almost vacuum. But because of this residual pressure, once the latches holding the two craft together are released, pressure will automatically push the spacecraft apart like a champagne bottle and a cork. Three and a half minutes pass and Swaggart says 30 seconds to Lem Jettison. Then 10 seconds. Then 5. At this point Swaggart rips the no note he's affixed to the Lem Jet switch and counts down. 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Then he flicks the switch. The crew hear an actual pop as the ships separate and out the windows they see the LEM begin to drift away. Swaggart says, Houston, LEM jettison complete. Kerwin says, okay, copy that. Then he adds quietly, farewell Aquarius, and we thank you. And uh, for Apollo 13, the age of Aquarius ended at uh, 141 hours, 30 minutes, ground elapsed time. And now all that is left is three men in a command module speeding towards the Earth. Hayes then asks Lovell, how do we stand on the moonset check? And Lovell asks, you ready for it? And Swaggart answers, as soon as we hit nighttime. Uh, this is again an unorthodox procedure to check that the trajectory of the ship is correct. As the ship arcs around the Earth and comes up on re-entry, the moon will set behind the Earth. NASA has calculated the exact right time that this will happen if the ship is on the correct trajectory. So if the moon does set at this time, then they know they're on the right path home. So as Odyssey begins to arc around the globe, they pass twilight in West Africa and Western Europe. And by the time they hit the Middle East, it's in darkness. Swaggart says, Houston, proceeding with the moonset check. Swaggart is watching out the window. He's watching the moon descend behind the horizon. He can still see it in its entirety. The spacecraft continues to fall and the moon continues to descend. Swaggart says, it's coming down, Joe. We're down to about 45 degrees and it's coming on down. Kerwin says, roger that. Swaggart says, down to about 38 degrees now. Kerwin says, okay, Jack, sounds real good. With 15 seconds left on the clock before moonset, Lovell says, Get anything, Jack? Nothing yet. Now? Negative. Then Lovell asks again, Now? Just three seconds left? Not yet, says Swaggart. But then at exactly the right time that the Fido, Jerry Bostick, and Mission Control had predicted, the moon drops a tiny bit and the bottom rim of it is obscured by the earth. Swaggart turns and grins at Lovell. They are precisely where they need to be for re-entry. Swaggart says, moonset. Then he goes on calm and says, Houston, attitude checked out okay. 
Kerwin replies, good deal. Odyssey Houston, your disky is doing all the right things. The GNN is go, over. Okay, thank you. You have a good bedside manner, too. Say again, Jack. You have a good bedside manner. That's the nicest thing anybody's ever said. Capcom Joe Kerwin, in addition to being a, an astronaut, is also a medical doctor. I sure wish I could go to the Fido party tonight. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's going to be a wild one. Less than uh, seven minutes now from time of uh, entry into the Earth's atmosphere. Onboard display now shows uh, a velocity of uh, 33,383 feet per second. We'll, we'll cover for you guys and then Jack's got any phone numbers he wants us to call while I pass them down. Lovell then turns his head and looks at each man in turn. He's remembering his re-entry on Apollo 8 and he says to Swaggart and Hayes, Gentlemen, we're about to re-enter. I suggest you get ready for a ride. They check their belts and Swaggart says over the comm, Joe, how far out do you show us now? And Kerwin replies, you're moving at 25,000 miles per hour. And on our plot map board, the ship is so close to the earth, we can't hardly tell you're out there at all. Then Swaggart says to Mission Control, I know all of us here want to thank all you guys for the very fine job you did. Lovell chimes in and says, that's a firm, Joe. And Kerwin replies... I'll tell you, we all had a good time doing it. At the flight director's console, Gene Kranz watches Joe Kerwin's interaction with the crew and he thinks he's just spectacular. And he just seems to be able to speak to this crew like he's on board the spacecraft with them, holding their hand as they step through procedure after procedure. Odyssey is now four minutes out from biting into the atmosphere and beginning re-entry. The heat and energy will be intense, and an ionization cloud will build up around the craft. This will cut off all communications between Mission Control and Odyssey for 3 minutes and 28 seconds. And with that, Gene Kranz feels a sense of loneliness. This crew will soon be truly on their own. And to him, this crew is special. They've faced down problem after problem and executed every procedure perfectly, despite being cold and exhausted. He doesn't want to lose them now. And around the room, Kranz can sense the same emotion, even for a team that's trained to keep these emotions buried deep. So this is it. Gene Kranz stands up, lights a cigarette, and looks around the room. Then he speaks on the calm. Let's go around the horn once more before re-entry. Ecom, you go, go flight. Retro, go. Guidance, go. GNC, go flight. Capcom, go. Inco, go. FAO, we're go flight. And Kranz says to Kerwin, Capcom, you can tell the crew they're go for re-entry. Kerwin says, Roger flight. Odyssey Houston, we just had one last time around the room and everyone says you're looking great. We'll have loss of signal in about one minute. Welcome home. And Swaggart says, thank you. To present, uh, we're now feeding a uh, downrange uh, picture uh, of the recovery uh, on the NASA closed circuit television circuit. Further report uh, from recovery, all recovery Aircraft, uh, the C-130s are airborne, and helicopters uh, one and two with swimmers are airborne and proceeding to station at this time. Both Araya aircraft are airborne and on station. Outside the windows of the command module, Swaggart can see a pink glow. 
Then he feels the first hint of gravity reasserting itself. Then the pink turns to orange and the orange turns to red. And this light is filled with flecks from the heat shield. And the G-forces begin to climb. 2G, 3G, 4G, 5G, then even 6G. And all they hear is static. Apollo Control Houston, uh, we've just had loss of signal uh, from uh, Honeysuckle uh, with Apollo 13. Our last velocity reading was uh, 35,837 feet per second with a range to go of 1,791 nautical miles. Down in mission control, the wait has begun. The entire room is looking at clocks on the wall counting down till time of AOS, acquisition of signal in three minutes and 28 seconds. Kranz stands and watches the room. They've achieved so much, but now they could have a damaged heat shield. And there's the worry about the parachutes. Would the main chutes, the mains even open? Or would they be frozen solid because they've spent so long in the cold of space? If they don't open, the crew are as good as dead because they'll hit the water too fast. And there isn't a sound from the men around them. The air conditioning is running, there's an electrical hum from their consoles, and Kranz can hear the sounds of Zippo lighters lighting cigarettes. Nobody moves. Everyone's still. They're all glued to a big map of the world on screen before them. The room is full of cigarette smoke, and the clocks continue to count down. Here in Mission Control, the uh, scene from the recovery... uh Ship Iwo Jima has been flashed up on one of our large screens uh, for all of the flight controllers to watch. We have about one minute to go now from uh, time of end to blackout. All right, Retro, we ought to be out of blackout in about 30 seconds. Roger. About 30 seconds to go for blackout. The blackout had began over Australia, and now as the men watch, the clocks hit zero. Krantz says quietly to Kerwin, Joe, give them a call. But when he does, there is only static. Kerwin calls again. Again, there's nothing. And the clocks continue to count. Network, any reports of Orion acquisition yet? Not at this time, fine. Okay. It's now one minute after the expected end of blackout, and they should have had acquisition of signal by now. They should have been able to contact the crew. Kranz can sense the feeling in the room turning to dread. He asks Chuck Dietrich if the clocks are good. Are they correct? Dietrich replies, they're good flight and Kranz feels the urge to smash something. Has the heat shield failed, is that it? If all had went well, they should have got AOS by now. Kranz knows everyone in the room is thinking the same thing, but no one says anything. No one even looks at one another. Network, no Araya contact yet? None of the staff flight. You've got communications with the Araya? That's permanent. Okay. In the trench where they've worked so hard to get the trajectory right, there is outright despair. Dave Reed and Chuck Dietrich are having a terrible time waiting. It's obvious to them that the crew are coming in shallow. That's why it's taking them so long. 
and Jerry Bostick is looking in disbelief around him. Just before the crew had gone into blackout, he'd had a great sense of relief about what they'd accomplished. But now, in the helplessness of blackout where he can do nothing, he feels despair closing in. Then, at 1 minute and 28 seconds past expected, AOS. They hear it. Ryan 4 is AOS, Mike. Raj. Capcom, why don't you try and give him a call? Just advise him standing by. Odyssey Houston is standing by. Okay, Joe. Okay, Joe. That's all Swigert says. Okay, Joe. Okay, we read you, Jack. We're looking at the weather on TV and it looks just as advertised, real good. In Apollo 13, the re-entry has been smoothed. The atmosphere has slowed their re-entry speed from 25,000 miles an hour to 300 miles an hour. The red light out their window has turned from orange to pink, then to the blue of home. Flight network, go network. Orion reports it's dropping in and out, but he's remoting it this time. Capcom, why don't you give him a call, see if they can give us the your target latitude and longitude. Odyssey Houston, uh, standing by for your uh, now 67, uh, when you get it, over. Lovell looks at his crewmates. He says, stand by for drogue shoots. They drop to 28,000 feet, then 26,000 feet, and then perfectly on 24,000 feet, they hear a pop. And out the window, they see two drogue parachutes fling up in the air behind them. Right there. Flight uh, Eagle Jim, Reply 4, Sonic Boom. Raj. They are now down to 175 miles per hour. The two drogues disconnect and the three main chutes, which are not frozen and are working perfectly, open and fly up behind them. Visual contact, right. Odyssey Houston, we show you on the main. It's really looking crazy. Television, In 13, Jim Lovell grabs the edge of his couch. Hayes and Swaggart do the same. Lovell says, hang on, if this is anything like Apollo 8, it could be rough. The main hang on, but it isn't rough. Their craft slices cleanly into the water, then shoots back out again. Through the window, Swaggart can see water running down the panes. Lovell simply says, fellas, we're home. Mission control goes wild. Joe Kerwin nearly collapses with relief at the Capcom's console. Gene Kranz fist pumps the air, and then he starts crying. He tries to stop, but this only seems to make it worse. So he stands at the console, tears streaming down his face. Capcom flight. I think the recovery forces got him now. 